Turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17, and my title this morning is The Gospel in Esther. The Gospel in Esther. Now, all of the Bible, I want us to understand this as we begin our study this morning, all of the Bible is meant to point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is what all of the Scripture is about. Every account... Every story, every history, every genealogy, every psalm, every proverb, and every prophecy. They are all meant to reveal and point and connect to the truth that God is working to bring all of human history to His appointed end. And that end is the exaltation and praise of Jesus forever. Amen? All of history is moving towards that moment, the praise and exaltation of Jesus, um, who is the Messiah, who will save His people, and who will rule over the universe forever as God's Son and King. And Jesus Himself intends for us to read our Bibles this way, through the lens of who He is and through God's purposes in Him. Listen to what Jesus tells the Pharisees and Sadducees in John chapter 5. He says this, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about Me. And Jesus says, And yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. Or when we look after the resurrection, um, when we look after the resurrection, um, um, and when Jesus appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke tells us that after Jesus has this long conversation with them, Jesus says this to his own disciples. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of the Bible is built on the fact that in the Old Testament, God makes promises all pointing to a future fulfillment of Christ. And all of the New Testament is built on the fact that it reaches back and it says, look at all of these promises that are all pointing and being fulfilled in Jesus Paul makes that point to Timothy when he writes to him and he says, But as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Now that's interesting because Timothy didn't have the New Testament. All Timothy had was the Old Testament. And Paul says, you've known them from childhood, and even they point to salvation by faith in Christ. So today, as we walk through Esther 8, I'm so excited about preaching this sermon, as you can tell, hopefully. He says, as we look through Esther 8, I want to draw attention to several gospel connections that you need to make. And I want to be clear as we do this, be very clear here hermeneutically, we're not treating Esther 8 as an allegory. It's not. There's not a one-to-one correlation between everything in Esther and everything in the Gospels. Um, What we're doing is called biblical theology. We're going to look at how the great themes of the Scripture, the great theme of the Gospel, runs like a crimson thread 
through even the book of Esther pointing to Jesus. And my ultimate goal here is, is this should help all of us learn to read our Bibles better. You should learn to read your Bible from the whole to the parts, and from the parts to the whole. That's how God intends. So let's, let me pray, and then we'll jump into Esther chapter 8, and I'll point out a few things. Father, take this word and speak straight to my own heart. Father, may it exalt and glorify Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And Father, who every promise that has ever been made finds its yes and amen in Him. So Father, bless this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to point out four truths. We'll read Esther 8 as we go through it. So here's the first truth, first gospel truth you need to understand. First is this, God often accomplishes His purposes through a mediator. That's what we see all through the Bible, but especially in verses 1 through 8. Look there, it says, On that day, that's the day that, that the king put Haman to death on the, on, on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. It says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which, had, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So what we see in these first few verses, that though Haman is dead, last chapter we saw that God judged Haman and he's killed, though he is dead, his evil policies remain in place. They are still in full effect. We're told that after Haman is hanged, the king gives Esther the entire house of Haman. Now this was, according to historians, a very common thing. All criminals who were convicted in Persia, all of their properties and possessions were confiscated and forfeit and given to the king to, di to, do to dispose with as he saw fit. Now Haman had incredible possessions as we have seen all throughout the book. He's a man who can promise to give 10,000 talents of silver for the destruction of the Jews, which was approximately one-third of the entire GDP of the Persian Empire per year. A man of incredible assets, and here he gives them to Esther. My guess is that he probably feels some responsibility for the situation, and he's trying to rectify it. But now this move demonstrates how solidly he believes in Esther's, in Esther's cause. 
But I want to say here that um, Haman's possessions being given to Esther is also a demonstration of God's purposes. Listen to what Proverbs 13.22 says. A man, a good man, leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Grandparents, hear that. (laughs) A, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The sinner's wealth is intended for the righteous. Now, we know that that does not always happen in our world, but there's a gospel point here. And that point is, there is coming a day when everything in this world will be given to God's people. There is not a thing on this planet that will not belong to God's children when Jesus returns. God stores up wealth even among the unrighteous for the righteous. And we see that played out in in a small part here with Esther being given the unrighteous wealth of this man Haman. But something else is happening here. Esther now reveals to the king her relationship with Mordecai. This has been a secret in the whole book that we've known about as readers, right? We know that Mordecai has been Esther's advisor. She's been Esther's confidant and she's been Esther's aide. She is the one who has been encouraging Esther to fulfill her destiny and stand in the gap between uh, between the king's edict and her people, much like Moses stood between God's wrath and God's own people, the Jews. But the king here learns that Mordecai is actually his own cousin by marriage and that he has been a trustworthy figure throughout. He's been more than just the man who has saved the king's life. And so in light of all of this new information, Ahasuerus takes the signet ring that Haman had worn and he gives it to Mordecai elevating Mordecai to the position of prime minister. So now, in all of Persia, we have an openly known Jewish queen, everybody knows it now, and an openly known Jewish prime minister. And so now, finally, in the book of Esther, they are in a position to address the evil, vile plan of Haman. So what does Esther do? She goes to the king again and she pleads and intercedes on behalf of her her people. She asks the king to avert Haman's evil plan. She falls at his feet and weeps. And at this point, we have to be very clear, at this point you need to know something. At this point, Esther's life has been saved. Esther's life has been spared as the queen. But... The lives of all the Jews across the empire are still hanging in the balance, right? The edict is still in effect. Secondly, she humbly requests that a letter be drawn up that would go out and and counter Haman's wicked plan. Again, she's careful here to lay the blame squarely with Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, who has basically deceived the king into doing this. And third, notice that she identifies herself sympathetically with her people. She identifies herself. Look at verse 6. Notice the empathy here, the sympathy, the, the, the compassion of, for her people, much like Jesus. She says, how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming upon my people? It will destroy me to see it. And here's the point. Esther refuses, just like she's done throughout the book, she she refuses to allow herself to just be concerned with her own situation and with her own deliverance. And that's a gospel issue for all of us. 
How selfish would it be for any of us to accept the salvation and deliverance of Jesus? How selfish would it be to accept the free gift of salvation for my own sins and then not care if my friends and family are separated from Christ and headed towards judgment unprepared? How selfish would you have to be to receive salvation for yourself and then allow the edict that is, meant, that is going to destroy your very own people, your very family, your very friends, remain in effect? We find ourselves in that position every single day as Christians. We, like Esther, have to plead, have to beg, and have to persuade others to come to Christ. And after Esther pleads, what happens? It says the king extends the golden scepter, again showing that he absolutely is giving her his favor, and he grants her request. She can write an edict, use the signet ring, issue an edict as the king's representative, and the point is that God is working out His plan right now to deliver His people through a mediator. That's what God is doing. Um, it happens all across the Bible. We see it with Joseph in Egypt as, as second in command. We see it um, with Moses, the man God gave the Israelites to lead them out of Egypt around the wilderness and to the promised land. God would speak to Moses and Moses would speak to the people. We see this with Joshua leading God's people. We see this throughout the book of Judges. We see it with David. And now, we see it with Queen Esther. Esther was placed here as God's mediator for such a time as this. To advocate on behalf of her people. Now ultimately, you need to know what that means in light of the Gospel. Ultimately, we see this truth that God works for the, on behalf of His people, through a mediator, ultimately we see the fullness of this truth in Jesus. God sends out Jesus as our mediator, as our advocate, as our representative, as the new Adam, as the new Moses, to reconcile us back to the Father. Jesus is God's own Son, bridges the gap between God and man because He's fully both. He can lay hold of God because He's God. He can lay hold of man because He's fully man. And He can reconcile the two together. As Paul says in Timothy, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all. The way God accomplishes His purposes in this world and for you and for His people is through His Son, Jesus, God's appointed mediator. That's the first truth. The second truth is this. The second gospel truth in Esther. God often accomplishes His purposes for His people through a mediator. Secondly, in God's coming kingdom, all wrongs will be made right. In God's coming kingdom, all wrongs will be made right. Look at verses 9-14 through 14 and what happens. It says, The king's scribes were summoned at that time. In the third month, which is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. To the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. 
And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then, the let, and then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's surface, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written to... Uh, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. The Jews were to be ready on that day and to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted their swift horses that were used in the king's surface, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. We're told here that on the 23rd day this happened. This was approximately two months and ten days after Haman's edict had been sent out. Just a good reminder for all of those in public office, this is a good reminder of how quickly an official can rise to power, he can pass his laws, and just as quickly fall from grace and be replaced. Two months and ten days. Haman's rise, Haman's fall. And in these very verses, we see um, something happening. There's a problem in the background that might not be evident at first glance, but it was hinted at in verse 8 of the previous section. The problem is, the problem that Mordecai and Esther face is that the laws of the Medes and Persians cannot be revoked. They cannot be revoked. There is no law that can be, they cannot be repealed. Now in our government system, we can repeal laws, we can change laws, we can adjust laws. That's why we have representatives and legislatures. But Haman's edict against the Jews that King Ahasuerus authorized cannot be repealed. So that is not an option for Esther and Mordecai. So what do they do? They take the only course of action they can. They draw up an edict that authorizes the Jews to defend themselves against any who would arm themselves or organize to attack them. So what they do is they address the injustice of the first decree with a just second decree. And verse 11 gives the details. Look there, this is so important and very particular. The Jews are authorized in verse 11 to gather so they can organize themselves. They are allowed to, um, they are authorized to defend their lives from those who would attack them first. Notice that they're not allowed just to go attack people at random. They are allowed to defend themselves against any armed force who would move against them to destroy them. And they can do it justly. What that means is they can do it on this one day that has been authorized and they can do it without fear of retaliation from the government. And so I want you to hear me. The joy, the, the, this is what's happening. Um, they can do it on the very day that Haman had authorized everyone to kill the Jews. And so they are authorized to defend themselves. Now this is all a matter of justice and righteousness. The first decree was always unjust. Haman's decree, no matter if the government gave approval, it was not righteous or just, even if it was legal. 
We need to understand that. Just because a government says you can wholesale murder people, that does not make it just. Think here of Nazi Germany, but think here also of the abortion industry. Just because a government says it is good and right does not make it righteous. It does not make it just. So, but here in Esther, we see the limitations of justice in our broken world due to sin. Evil is still active and can still seek to accomplish its purpose, but at least now, through Haman and uh, through Mordecai and Esther's second decree, at least now the Jewish people can defend themselves without fear of government retaliation. Now, all of us here, we should intuitively know this to be true no matter how much others try to hide it or try to distort it. Justice demands in a broken world that people have the right to defend themselves from evil because evil really exists and evil left unchecked will only lead to more evil. And so, self-defense is warranted. And that's what we see here in Esther. So the edict that Esther and Mordecai sends out points to a gospel truth. Like I said, that truth is, in God's coming kingdom, which is not right now, every wrong will be made right. Here, an unjust decree is at least mitigated by a just decree. The truth is that one day God will make every wrong right. There's coming a day when Jesus steps back onto this earth when He will squash all unrighteousness and He will punish every evil deed. And that does not happen all the time in our current broken world, does it? Do we see justice always prevailing in our world? No. Do we see righteousness always prevailing? No. Sometimes injustices go unpunished. Sometimes wrongs happen and evil seems to prevail. But here's the truth. Jesus will prevail. Amen? Jesus will prevail. That is absolutely true. And His kingdom will write the last chapter of history. The last chapter has not been written yet, but it will be written. And Revelation 21 says this. This is the picture of that coming kingdom. It says this in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Now I'm going to skip to verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Every evil will be punished. Every wrong will be made right. And Jesus will write the last chapter. Amen? Esther gives a glimpse of that truth with one just edict that, allowed, that is given to undo what seems to be an irrevocable, unjust edict. 
And then find, third, before i got to wrap, i got to move quickly, third gospel truth. Third, the gospel produces confidence, celebration, and joy in believers. Look at what happens in verses 15 through 17. An incredible reversal of emotions. It says, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes out of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews of feast and a holiday. What do you see happening here? We have an incredible picture of reversal. Mordecai, think of this picture here. Mordecai, who is supposed to be hanging on the gallows, 75 feet above the city, is instead now dressed in the royal robes of the king. I can't help but see here a picture of Jesus resurrected and reigning over His people. It's not what that means, but that's just in my mind. This is the picture that comes to mind. That He has conquered death. He should be on the cross. He should be on the gallows. But He's not. He is right here ruling over the city. And so, He's now dressed in robes, wearing the royal crown. And verse 16 says, The city rejoices. They were once in confusion, once in sadness and disarray, and now they rejoice. And now the Jews, instead of gloom and darkness, they have light and gladness and joy and honor. Everything has changed for them because everything has changed for Esther and Mordecai. It says in verses if you look back in verses three and of, uh, verse three of chapter four, I'll just remind you of what happened before when the first edict went out. It says, in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And now, two months and ten days later, God has worked, and now what happens? The time for mourning has passed. The time has come for gladness and joy it is the right time to celebrate and to feast and rejoice. And here is the application. This is, a small, this is a small picture of what should be the daily experience of those who have received Christ as their Savior. For those of us who have passed from death to life, who have had the record of their sins expunged, for those who have had the weight of their conscience cleansed by Christ, for those who have been freed from the penalty and power of sin, for those who are enemies of God, who have now been welcomed into God's family, for those who are headed straight for death, destruction, and hell, who are now forgiven and free and have received eternal life. It's not the time, Christian, hear me, it is not the time. It is not the time for worrying. It is not the time for complaining. It's not the time for grumbling. It's not the time for disputing, fighting, arguing, despairing, running, or hiding. That is not the time. No, it is the time to break out in joyous celebration. It is time for praise and honor. But why? Because like Mordecai, our Savior stands. Our Savior is not in the grave. 
He is standing at the right hand of the majesty on high, dressed in His royal regalia, face smiling, scars showing, eyes gleaming. He's defeated our foe, and the devil is as good as dead. It is no time to hide in the caves. His minions might still attack. Yes, darkness might still seem to prevail, but the power has been given to the people of the King. And that's us. We have been given the power. We will not be defeated. Take confidence in that truth and take courage. Because one far more powerful than Esther stands in your stead. His name is Jesus. And He's the same Jesus who said, in this world you may have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That is our Savior. So the Gospel produces confidence and celebration and joy in believers. So here, if you are not a Christian who's filled with that kind of attitude, then you got the wrong Jesus. That's just, let me say that. And then finally, let me wrap this up. Woo. The gospel welcomes finally all people into Christ's kingdom. Look at, how this, look at how this ends. What a picture. The end of verse 17, it says, And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. What a turn of event where the Jews are going to be destroyed, and instead, now all of the people are saying, I want to attach myself to those people. I want to become part of those people. I want to declare myself to be a part of God's people. A similar language there says that fear of the Jews had fallen on them. That's the similar language to the fear of the Jews that had fallen on the people of Canaan as the Jews conquered the promised land because God had promised to put fear in them. But in that instance, their fear led them to fight against the people of God instead of joining them. But here in Esther, we get a small glimpse here in, here, in, here, in Esther, um, here in Esther, they choose to join the Jews, much like Rahab did from Jericho. And everyone here is seeing the covenant made to Abraham played out. God is blessing those that bless God's people and cursing those that curse God's people. And here's what we see. The people of Persia see now that it's better to be named among God's people. And this is a picture of what ultimately happens in Christ. In Christ, all who repent of their sin and rebellion and turn to Him are welcomed as part of God's people. It doesn't matter if you're Persian. You can join us. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your color. It doesn't matter anything. Turn to Jesus and we welcome you as part of God's people. Now as I conclude here, I want to say that we may find ourselves rejoicing when we see reverses happen. And there's a lot of reverses here in this text. We may even be tempted to rejoice when Haman is killed. But when we consider the gospel, what we see is that Jesus didn't rejoice that someone else was on the gallows. Instead, He pushed us out of the way and chose to hang there Himself in our place. That's the gospel. The message of Esther is not be like Esther or be like Mordecai. The message of Esther is that all of us are like Haman. All of us deserve to be on the gallows. But take heart, because Jesus went to the cross in your place. And now He is reigning for His people. Now before I close in prayer, I want to make a little brief invitation. After we close in a minute, if you don't know Jesus, 
then the most important thing is that you come to Him in repentance and faith and be welcomed among His people. If you're a Christian, then you need to take these gospel truths and live in light of them. Don't live in despair. Don't live defeated. Live knowing that Jesus is on His throne. And and now we live to make Him known and invite all people to join us in His victory. It's not ours, it's His. And we invite you that if you are not a part of our church family, we invite you to be a part of our church family where we're going to live for Jesus together. As God's people, we welcome you. If you will receive Jesus, walk in repentance and faith, and you do that. Let me pray for you, and then I have a word before we're dismissed, okay? So stick, stay, stay still. Father, pray that you would bless your word today. And Lord, we ask that you would work in our midst and that Christ would be exalted in all that we say and do. Father, we ask that you would work in our lives to work your victory in us, that we would live as people who know that the edict has been revoked and we are now free and we are now able to walk in Jesus' victory by the power of the Holy Spirit given to us. So Father, may we walk in His Spirit, living for Jesus, living for His glory, making Him known. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.